Let's pray. God, thank you that we can come this morning to gather together as your body to worship as your people. Lord, our desire is to be, to be your holy people, to follow after you, to be obedient to your word. As we open up your word, Lord, I pray that you would speak through me and strengthen me and open up our hearts, our ears, our minds to what your Holy Spirit is speaking. Speak, O Lord. Your servants are listening. Amen. Well, friends, I did have a, a great week at VBS. It was a lot of fun seeing uh, all the kids and all the games that we got to play. And this is just kind of an aside, but I, I think serving with children in the church, it's kind of like a, it's a spiritual discipline. I had a seminary professor who said it was, a, it was a requirement in his church plant that you had to serve with children in some way. Because Jesus said, if I, whoever welcomes a child in my name welcomes me. There's something that only happens when we serve children. It's a, it's a powerful thing. And so if you're not serving kids in our church, I, I encourage you to find a way uh, to do that. Serve in the nursery, serve in the toddler room, serve in our summer Sunday school. Um, it's a good thing for you spiritually. Uh, it's a good thing for us to be around kids. Uh, it's, it's good for us. But anyway, that was just kind of an aside. That has nothing to do with what I'm going to say today. Uh, but I was thinking of, uh, in April of 2019, I had the privilege of, of traveling with Peter Smith uh, to Kazakhstan uh, to go visit uh, Almas and Marina, two missionaries that we support, and uh, to kind of encourage them and what they were doing out there. Um, and really, actually, I just got off the phone uh, with Almas and Marina the other day. I called them up on Facebook, and they're doing well. They actually just moved to another city. Uh, because their church plan is doing so well. God is raising up new leaders. Now they're going to an, another city 500 miles away, and they're starting more house church plants. Um, so the Lord is doing amazing things in a place where the gospel is not welcome. People don't want to hear about Jesus, and a lot of people don't know Jesus. They're doing amazing, amazing work. But anyway, when I was there uh, a couple years ago, uh, one afternoon, we were just sitting around in almost his apartment, and the church leaders were discussing uh, the name of their movement. You know, the kind of, they, they, had this, they used to have this other name, you know, a couple years ago. Now they were considering changing the name, They're, and some people were calling it something else. And they were debating, going back and forth, the merits of various names uh, of their movement. And, uh, and really, I came in with a mindset that, you know, I have so much more to learn than I have to give. So I, I'm here to learn as much as possible from these amazing leaders. And so I just said, you know, what, you know what, why is this so important to you? Why are you guys uh, talking about this? And so then they started talking to each other in Russian. That's the, the main language. And they're talking to each other in Russian. And then they, they kind of come back to me and they say, you know, it's kind of hard to translate. It's kind of hard to translate, but we have a proverb about this. And it says, how you name the boat determines its direction. And there's some story about a, about a sailor who named their boat like disaster and there was a disaster uh, <laughs> that, that happened. But that, that's where this proverb came from. Um, and it reminded me of our, our denomination. Our denomination used to be called the Swedish Evangelical Mission Covenant of America. That's kind of a mouthful, isn't it? <laughs> and it came to a point where, you know, these were all Swedish immigrants that had come to the U.S. in the late 1800s, and, you know, they were growing, and, and it came to a point where the denomination realized, you know, that even though we're in a new land, the Great Commission hasn't changed. We're still called to reach all these people around us, all of our neighbors, and something needs to be done. We need to change the name of this denomination so, because if we just keep calling it the Swedish thing, we're only going to reach Swedes. And if our services are only going to be in Swedish, we're only going to reach Swedish-speaking people. Something needs to be done. And so they changed the name 
to the Evangelical Covenant Church of America in 1954. Later on, the America was dropped because we also have Canada. We're Canadians. You know, God bless Canada. There you go. <laughs> so we have, we have covenant churches in Canada. So that happened in 1954. Now, over 70 years later, the covenant church, this is a fact, is the most diverse denomination in the United States and Canada. That's a fact. It is the most diverse group. And the covenant calls this the kingdom mosaic. If you were, I think if you guys were ever to go to a covenant meeting, you would be honestly shocked. It's like going to the United Nations. You know, we got the, we got the Swedish Lutheran still. We still got that stream, but we got the black church stream. We got the Latino church stream. We got the Asian church stream. And then we have all of the missionaries we support globally. When you go to a covenant meeting, it is unbelievable. You should go sometime. It's amazing. But clearly, the name of the boat shifted the direction of the denomination. It shifted it. It matters. Because names tell us something about the identity, something about the, the essence of something, but names also have the power to shift identity and values and what happens over time. And when I started this series on the book of Acts uh, nine weeks ago now, um, I told you at that point that uh, my main interest in this sermon series is considering again, what does it mean to be the church of Jesus Christ. You know, as we're coming out of this pandemic, what does it mean to be Christ followers in this season? And so today in Acts chapter 9, there are many names given for the group of people who believe in Jesus the Messiah. So I invite you to turn with me to Acts chapter 9, whatever form of Bible you might have. Um, and in this passage, we have the most famous conversion of the Bible. Saul or Paul uh, goes from the greatest persecutor of the church to someone who's going to be persecuted for the name of Jesus. It's an incredible story of God's initiative to save us and God's grace over the, for the worst of sinners. And we're going to touch on that a little today, but um, I'm not going to focus so much on the story of Saul because actually Luke is going to bring the story up two more times in the book of Acts. So we're going to have time to dive into the story later, but today I actually just want to zoom in on some of these smaller details, uh, these, these names in here. Uh, that we might just skip over, but they have a lot of theological meaning that can help us in our, in our uh, life together as the church. And there are at least six different names given for the group of believers uh, in this passage. Uh, don't worry, I'll be brief on many of them, uh, but uh, I want to consider all of them. So I want to answer the question, who is the church of Jesus Christ? Who are we? Well, number one, we are the way. The way. In Acts chapter 9, it says, Saul went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. So, starting with the story of Saul. Saul is this religious terrorist. I mean, it is, is serious. He, he is threatening to murder these people. And many Christians had fled all to various parts of Judea and Samaria, and some had even gone to Damascus. And Paul was so determined to destroy Christianity that he was willing to take a week's journey on foot to go to Damascus so that he might arrest some of them and bring them back to Jerusalem. We'll more about that later. But he wanted to find anyone there who belonged to the way. 
So thus far in the book of Acts, Luke has given us mainly general names for the church, really just either the believers or the disciples. These are things that a Christian would call the church. But what was this group known by publicly in the community? Well, it seems that from the very beginning, the first name of the Jesus movement was simply the way, the way. And this is a name that is found only in the book of Acts. And where did this name come from, you might wonder? Well, the disciples would have remembered lots of things. They would have remembered that uh, John the Baptist was preparing the way for the Lord to come. (coughs) You have to excuse me. I lose my voice very easily. After a week at VBS, my throat is really struggling. So if you would pray for me right now, I hope I can get through this. It's not a good to be a pastor and have vocal cords that are weak, but I, I do. I don't have really good uh, breath support genes. I need to work on that. But um, Jesus said, they remember Jesus saying, enter through the narrow gate for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life and only a few find it. They would also remember Jesus saying, I am the way, I am the truth and the life. So they would remember all that, but they would also remember that this concept goes back even further to the Old Testament. Psalm 1, which was the opening to the Psalter. It says, Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to destruction. So the Old Testament, it talked about uh, two ways all the time. The way of the righteous and the way of the wicked the way of the wise, and the way of the foolish. And the rabbis would refer to what they called as the way of the Torah, the way of the Torah. This was how they taught people how to live and obey God's commandments. And they would call this halakha, which, is, uh, which literally means the way of walking, how we are to walk in the, the commandments and ways of God. And so Jesus, in the early church, they radically proclaimed that this way was found through following Jesus. That the way of righteousness, the way that leads to life, the way of salvation, the way that is wise, that is righteous, that is just, the way that God wants us to walk is found only through following Jesus Christ. It is the way that leads us away from destruction and judgment and leads us to life. And I think calling something the way totally shifts maybe how we might think about what the church is, who the church is. Uh, you know, one of my seminary professors, uh, David Fitch, uh, he is a great church planner. He's planted many churches. And he would talk about how, you know, and maybe this was more back in the day, but I think this is still common. Uh, it was common for, you know, new, ch- new, new church planners coming in that, okay, we're going to set up a website and we're going to list all our, all our beliefs on the website. Okay, we believe this about God. We believe this about the Bible. We believe this. We believe this. And come, come worship with us. We got, we got a great worship service and a good speaker Come, come join us. And so it was gathering people around, mainly believing the same things. You know, which is a great way of reaching people who already believe the same things you do. And often is a good, and I think God, you know, God blesses that and uses that. But I believe we want to reach people who don't yet agree with us, who don't yet believe the things that we do, who don't yet believe in Jesus Christ. And of course, don't hear me wrong, what we believe is critically important. I believe the Word of God is, is, the, is the foundation. It's the only standard for, for faith, for doctrine, for conduct, for all that we believe and teach. 
But naming the boat determines the direction. And so Fitch would ask the question, what would change if instead of doing that, what if we gathered people around a set of practices? You know, they would say, you put, on, you put up on the website, you know, at this church, we worship together weekly, and afterwards, there, there's a meal where we, where we share in each other's lives. You know, every week, many of us show up to a, a Sunday school class where we, we dive deep into the Word of God together. We gather in our homes uh, twice a month with other believers, sharing meals, sharing life, praying for one another. We do things intergenerationally on Wednesday nights, and the, and the kids come and are discipled. We go to a worship night uh, once in a quarter. Uh, every year, everyone who can attend comes on a retreat together and gets to know each other in a deeper way. We all read the Bible together, and we have partners that we do this with, and we text each other, and we encourage each other in our walk. Our kids do VBS together every year, and our teenagers serve. Our kids go to covenant camps. Our men go to covenant point. We do things that reach out to those who don't know Christ. We all give of our money so that we can support this common life that we have together and support the missionaries that we support around the world. And everyone in our church, they find a place to serve in, with their passions and their gifts so that this place might be built up. Would you come join us? Doesn't that shift things? Doesn't that shift things? We're gathering around a way of life, a set of practices. So friends, maybe you don't even need me to say this, but church is not just intellectually agreeing with the people that you're sitting next to in worship. As if that were possible. <laughs> impossible. You won't find a church where you agree with everything. It's impossible. But we want to gather people around the Word of God and around a way of life that we do together. This is a way. And when, when Luke gives his first summary report in the book of Acts of what the church is doing, he talks about practices. He says the early church, they, devote, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Okay, that includes beliefs, but also we're going to learn from the apostles. We're going to dive into the Word of God. We're devoted to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to praying together. It's about gathering around a way of life. That's why it was called the way. It was a way of life. Everyone following Jesus, and we want to do that together. So that's the first name we encounter. Uh, the second thing we're going to encounter is the, the fact that we are Christ's body. We are Christ's body. Let's go back to Saul. It says, as he nears Damascus on his journey... Uh, suddenly, a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground, heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. Now, with this title, with this name, I'm, I'm cheating a little bit here because I'm using something the Apostle Paul says later. We don't get this exact phrase in this particular passage, but the idea of Christ's body is seen in this passage. Jesus says, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Why do you persecute me? I am, he says, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. See, Paul did not think, and he was not aware, that he was personally persecuting Jesus of Nazareth. He thought Jesus was dead. He didn't think Jesus was alive. You know, he thought, he thought that he was uh, uh, arresting heretical Jews. He didn't think Jesus was involved in this, but Jesus identifies himself so deeply with his people that to persecute Christians is to persecute him because he is one with them. They are his body. And I am intentionally using the phrase Christ's body rather than body of Christ. 
Because I think when we think about the body of Christ, we think about all the various parts and kind of we're all, you know, we all have a different job to do. But I want to emphasize the oneness, the unity that Christ has one body on this earth. And the church is it. It's one body. And so how we treat other Christians is how we are literally treating Christ Jesus himself. Let that sink in. How you treat other Christians is how you are treating Jesus himself in reality because it's his body. And if Jesus were to appear to you in a vision, call out your name, what would he say about how you're treating him right now? Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you're slandering, who you're criticizing behind my back. I am Jesus, whom you are neglecting and forgetting. I am Jesus, whom you are accusing, hurting, and insulting. I am Jesus, whom you are not forgiving. I am Jesus, whom you are not caring about my suffering and my injustice. I am Jesus, whom you are not clothing or feeding or giving a drink or providing hospitality. I am Jesus, whom you are not visiting in prison or when I am sick. As Jesus said, what you did unto one of these least brothers of mine, you did unto me. Friends, we want to hear Jesus say, oh, I am Jesus, whom you are loving, whom you are caring for, whom you are so tender and compassionate towards. I am Jesus, whom you are showing so much kindness to. You're doing such a good job. Keep going. That's what I want to hear. We are Christ's body. We are Christ's body. Let's treat each other like it. The third name, or the third idea that we'll, we'll encounter here is that we are the family of God. We are the family of God. 1 John 3. Remember John who wanted to destroy the Samaritans last week? He said, See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. The most common designation for, for Christians in the New Testament is brothers and sisters. As brothers and sisters. It happens more than any other name in the entire New Testament. And Paul says that because the Holy Spirit has been poured out into our hearts, we all cry, Abba, Father, to the same God. And in our story, Ananias, he is told to go find Saul and to place his hands on him to restore his sight. And Ananias, he knew who Saul was. He knew who this guy was, and he knew what he was up to. And the Lord didn't tell him, by the way, you know, I've, I've met Saul and he's changed. Like, he didn't tell him that, those details. And so Ananias has to respond. He's like, Lord, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm that he has done. And he's come here to arrest people. We, like, we don't want to help this guy. Like, like, tell me something that has changed. And the Lord says to him, go, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name. So the Lord affirms to Ananias that God is choosing Saul to proclaim the name of Jesus, and God is now choosing Ananias to go restore him and welcome him. And then it says in verse 17, then Ananias went to the house and entered it. And now he sees the man. He sees the man who approved of Stephen's killing. There's the man who's been dragging my friends, men and women, off to prison. Here's the man who's been primarily responsible for all of us leaving our homes, having to leave Jerusalem and, fl and flee to Judea and Samaria and now to Damascus. Here's the man who is a murderer, killer, terrorist. 
Here's the man who deserves judgment. What's Ananias going to do? Ananias goes to the house, enters it, places his hand on Saul. Brother Saul. Saul, my brother. Wow! What an astounding welcome to this man who had been doing all this stuff. It seems like these are the first words from a Christian that Saul has heard since meeting Jesus. Brother. What did he think of being called that? You know, perhaps Ananias' welcome is maybe the primary reason or a big reason why Saul is, is going to use brother and sister every time he writes one of his letters. Because the first thing that he was called was brother. Brother. Brother Saul. You know, there's something so, I think, special about using this, this family language uh, in the church. Um, and to be honest, I think many churches are not very good at this. Uh, the Swedish Lutheran stream is not as good at this. Now, the black church has this down much better. You know, sister so-and-so, brother so-and-so. Uh, you know, I, when I, I did an internship in Hawaii, uh, and everyone there in the church, it was, it was auntie so-and-so, uncle so-and-so. Uh, and the, the, the level of, uh, even as a, a person flying in and just being welcomed, is oh my gosh, I feel like I'm family here already. You know, it's like, it was amazing. Um, and I believe what you name the boat, friends, can determine the direction. And what you call the people you worship with people you go to church with, what you call them can determine the direction of the relationship. You know, I believe calling each other family, calling each other brother and sister, aunt or uncle, this can have a transformative effect upon the community. You know, Paul told the young pastor Timothy, 1 Timothy, do not rebuke an older man harshly, but exhort him as if he were your father. Treat younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, and younger women as sisters with absolute purity. In other words, treat everyone in the church like family. Now, I, I have a confession. You know, I, I have a very uh, easy time calling uh, men who are maybe younger than me or my age, r- roughly maybe a little older. Uh, I'm good with the, the brother there. Like, I, I, I like that. And personally, I like being called brother. You can call me Brother Nate. That's fine. Uh, many men uh, in the church do that. That's great. Um, sometimes with the older men, though, I, I, it doesn't feel as comfortable. You know, I'm like, 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 Brother Stan, would, like, I don't know, like, that would be a little weird, but, like, Father would be weird, too, like, <laughs> like, that, that doesn't seem to work, like, <laughs> Grandpa could work, you know, like, like, Father Craig just sounds too, too, like, Catholic or something, like, it's just, it, I don't know, so maybe we need to be like the, Ho- like, the Hawaiians and, like, go with Uncle, in fact, I know Stan actually goes by Uncle to a lot of people here. That's wonderful. You should be Uncle Stan. That's great. And we need more of that. And for the women in the church, like, I don't know what to do with the women in the church. I, honestly, like, 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 culturally speaking, like, like, bro, like, guys call each other brother, like, in the world, like, like, outside of a church context. It's like, yeah, brother, what's up, you know? But, like, girls, it's like, like, sister, like, I don't know. It doesn't, it feels a little bit weird. So, like, I don't know why that, I don't know why that is. And I don't want to be weird. I don't want to be weird, but I think there's something important here, um, and I feel like it could be a powerful thing. And for the for the older women, like a, like a, like an Aunt Sharon Gutowski or a, or an Aunt Elaine or a, or, or gra- Grandma. In fact, I know uh, Jean Peterson goes by Grandma Jean to to McKenna. Uh, that's a great thing. We have a lot of youngsters who need Grandma and Grandpas in the Lord. 
We should, and don't be afraid of adopting that, that familial name. It is biblical. It is scriptural. It is a good thing to do. Um, and part of me feels like, you know what, this is just a cultural thing that, apart from the power of God and intentional practice, like maybe we would never actually do this. Um, but I do think there's something important about it. Because how we name the boat, how we name each other, can shift the direction of the relationship. And the truth is, whether you feel lovey-dovey or not with the, the people in the church, it doesn't matter because the truth is, through Jesus Christ, you are brothers and sisters. And some of you, you're my older brothers and sisters, and some, a few of you, you're my younger brothers and sisters. But we're brothers and sisters. Do you think Ananias felt brotherly towards Saul? Do you think he felt some type of warmth and affection? He doesn't even know the guy. All he knows about him is he was a terrorist. And but because Ananias, because Jesus revealed to Ananias that he has changed Saul and Saul has become a Christ follower, the first words out of Ananias' mouth, brother Saul. It was intentional. It was intentional. It shifted, and I believe that phrase, I believe, I could be wrong, but I believe it shifted the direction of the Apostle Paul's life. Because now he goes on to call everyone brothers and sisters. So, this might be weird at first, <laughs> but I don't care. Push through it because we are the family of God. And one, one last thing about this point is I believe that we should have a, and this kind of relates to what I said in the last point, but you should have a, we should have a healthy fear about how we treat other Christians. Because in reality, this is a son or daughter of the Most High God. I mean, if, if I were to treat any other, you know, your, your son or your daughters, it would, like, you expect honor. You expect respect. This is a son or daughter of God. How you treat them shows your respect and honor to God. And this is why Paul will say, clothe yourselves with compassion towards one another. Clothe yourselves with compassion and kindness. Because you're treating a son or daughter of God, a fellow brother and sister. We are all in the same family. Finally, the next name that we get to is that we are disciples. We are disciples of Jesus. Going back to Saul, Ananias prays over him, and it says, verse 18, immediately something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he could see again. He got up and was baptized. After taking some food, he regained his strength. Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. So the disciples, this is a, a very common designation for the group of Christians. Uh, Luke uses it 28 times in the book of Acts. I think if I remember right, it's used like over 200 times in the New Testament. Um, and remember that disciple means student. One who is a student. One who is learning from a teacher, from a master. You know, we are called disciples because we are studying how to follow Jesus, our Lord and teacher. And we are always disciples. We never graduate from the school of discipleship because we are always students. We are always learning. And in every season of life, you have new trials, you have new situations, you have new things that you're dealing with. And the question is, well, what, what would Jesus do in this moment? What would Jesus do with this opportunity? How can I be like Jesus in this season of my life? Because I think if we're not careful, we can start acting like we're alumni and not students. Right? Oh, we've graduated from this school. I know this. No, we're, 
We're still in school. We're still students of Jesus. I want to ask you, are you studying his curriculum? Are you studying his curriculum? And you might ask, well, what, what is the curriculum of Jesus? Well, mainly, it's the four Gospels, but especially, it's the Sermon on the Mount. This, the, the capstone of all that Jesus taught. And so I believe we need to be regularly, whether in, we're, it's part of the Bible reading plan or not, we need to be in the Gospels and in the Sermon on the Mount because these are the things that Jesus taught us and gave us an example to do. So we're disciples of Jesus. Number five, we are God's holy people. We are God's holy people. In verse 13, Ananias refers to Christians as God's holy people, or in some older translations, you might see the word the saints. These are the sanctified ones. These are the holy ones, the people of God. Scholar Craig Keener says, Jewish tradition recognized that God had sanctified Israel. That is, set Israel apart for himself. And some early texts associate this setting apart with God's commandments, following in the way of his commandments. And now, it's not just the Jewish people who are the ones set apart. It's the disciples of the Messiah, Jesus, who are set apart to be God's people, God's holy people who are different from the world around them, who will walk in the way of his commandments because the Holy Spirit has been poured into their hearts to sanctify them. And I believe we need to take holiness more seriously in the church. We need to take holiness much more seriously than we do. You know, Luke concludes this passage uh, in chapter 9 uh, with that the church, uh, actually not the end of chapter 9, but before he gets to Peter, says uh, they were living in the fear of the Lord and they were encouraged by the Holy Spirit. The church increased in numbers. And I think there's, there's a connection here between holiness and living in the fear of the Lord. You know, the Proverbs said the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. You know, I think living in, the, in a healthy fear of the Lord, it helps us say no to sin and yes to Christ. It helps us say no to things that distract. And you know, we have to remember that, that God does judge sin. And that yes, we are saved by grace, but, but one day we're going to stand before Jesus. He said we'll have to give an account to everything we've done and everything that we have said. It will be accountable to him. Do we have any fear of standing before this judgment seat? Have we no fear of this day? Have we no fear of God? You know, would Luke write about the church today that we're living in the fear of the Lord? We're living in the fear of the Lord. And the scriptures, friends, they don't mean to literally be afraid of God. That's not, that would not be right. But it's, it's a holy reverence. It's a view that takes his holiness, his justice, his righteousness seriously. It's a view that it's a view of God that remembers that sin is deadly and destructive and that I am called to holiness and I'm going to be held accountable and I'm living my life in light of that day. So we give him the, the reverence due his name and we are his holy people and we're called to be his holy people because he's put his Holy Spirit in us. We're called to imitate his holiness. Be holy as I am holy, the Lord says. And finally, the last, the last name that we have in here is simply we are the church. We are the church. And verse 31, Then the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace and was strengthened. Now this word church in this passage is the word, Greek word ekklesia, and it was used by the, the Greeks of that culture to talk about a citizen's assembly where they would come together and talk about various matters and vote on things. And so this was a called-out assembly of the citizens of uh, the community or the nation. And so the church 
is the citizens of the kingdom of heaven where we, we are called together to do God's will in our community. And we have the privilege of being a part of it because of Jesus. We've been made citizens of this kingdom. And I love how Luke, he assumes a, a, a oneness, a unity. He simply says, uh, the church. He doesn't say all the churches throughout the Judea and Samaria and, and, and Galilee. He just says the church. It's one church. It's Christ's body. There is one church, one assembly of kingdom citizens. And so, friends, I believe that what we, what we call ourselves, what we call each other, these things can have a significant impact on how we live as Christians, how we live together as the church, and as disciples of Jesus. So who are we? We are followers of the way. We are Christ's body. We are the family of God. We are disciples of Jesus. We are God's holy people. And we are the church.